host, Nick Jacomas, and today I'm speaking with Razib Khan. Razib is a expert and a writer in genetics. He writes a lot on his substack called Unsupervised Learning about topics related to human and evolutionary genetics. He's a really good writer. He's got a lot of captivating stories out there about human genetics, generally speaking. He also knows a lot about personal genomics. He recently founded a genomics company that he runs during the day. And so a lot of the subjects we talked about had to do with human population and evolutionary genetics. We talked about ancient human DNA and Neanderthals and all that stuff. So if you're interested in the story of human evolution and how that's changed, over the past 20 years as a consequence of new genomics technologies and our ability to study ancient DNA. This will be a really, really fascinating conversation to listen to. We also got into stuff related to personal genomics, so 23andMe, Ancestry.com, that type of stuff, how it works, what it can be used for, and what the space of personal genomics is going to look like as time progresses. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on the Mind and Matter podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Don't forget to check out my Substack and free weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to at mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll see all the podcast content I produce on that Substack. You'll be able to subscribe to that newsletter for free. You can also upgrade to become a paid supporter of the podcast and help support what I'm doing to keep it growing and keep it going. I also have some long-form writing that synthesizes a lot of the different topics I talk about on the Substack that I post there from time to time, and I appreciate your support. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and 
engineered for different purposes. And my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts. And I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying AminoCo's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising, and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off. And with that, here's my conversation with Razib Khan. stuff but uh, I have enough sure. sexy stuff in my life so you know I want to be <laughs> here today. okay cool um and what's your yeah why don't you just kind of give everyone a quick intro of who you are and what your academic background and pedigree is sure all right uh so uh my name is Razib Khan um in terms of education I have degrees in biochemistry and biology from University of Oregon um, I am uh, everything but dissertation at UC Davis um I studied evolutionary genomics uh work on cat and uh, equidomestication. Um, so I was really interested in those topics. Uh, I've also done a fair amount of consulting and work in the personal genomic space. Um, I did a na- um, Family Tree DNA's original algorithm and National Geographic, the late great National Geographic test. I did their autosomal algorithm, um, the latest version for that. So, and I've done other consulting uh, in the private sector space, can't disclose everything, uh, but a lot of my work has been phylogenetics and phylogenomics. Uh, right now, I'm actually co-founder of a startup called Generate, uh, and this is more about the future, uh, basically helping with big data and precision medicine, that sort of thing. Uh, another thing I'm super obsessed with and interested in personal genomics, uh, aside from evolutionary genomics and archaeogenetics, and uh, my older son is the first human who was sequenced alive before he was born, so that's in the history books, and uh, you know, I see a future where we're all going to be doing that sort of thing, uh, and also the animals and the plants and the whole world. So um, that's what I, I do during the day, focus on that, um, you know, basically solutions for companies in the genomic space uh, to make uh, this new discipline uh, really efficient and scale up. Uh, but um, the other thing that I do, which I think you probably know me for more, is my writing, my Substack, my blogs, uh, you know, I've been quote unquote communicating population genetics and evolutionary genetics and human genetics for a couple of decades now. In the last couple of years, I have a substack at receive.substack.com um, where I mostly talk about uh human evolutionary history, uh human genetic history. Uh very like specific. So for example, you know, the genetic history of the Ashkenazi Jews, something like that. And my uh, my pieces, my posts, they tend to be pretty long. Sometimes they're multi-part, but, you know, they're always at least 5,000 words and, you know, each part will be about 5,000 words. And it's usually a mix of history and genetics. Some of the genetics is from the scientific literature, but since I have tens of thousands of samples myself and I can do a lot of analyses, I often try to do original analyses for the posts as well. Yeah, no, a lot of your content on Substack is, is super interesting. So it, it sort of appeals to people who are 
history nerds and genetics nerds. And it's sort of a, I guess, a historical, uh, historical stories that you tell about different populations of humans um, at different, different time points in history, recent history or fairly deep history, often through the lens of genetics. And it, it is fairly unique in its approach to telling these historical stories. How, how did you even, was this just born out of personal interest? You, you were just always interested in that type of subject? Yeah, yeah, I've always been interested in that type of subject. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that I meet in science who thought about being history majors as well. And, you know, we took a different route. Uh, I'm one of those people probably. Well, I mean, I don't know if I ever thought about being a history major. I did minor in history, but um, it was always an interest of mine. But, you know, I was a quote unquote STEM person from when I was a little kid. And I knew I was going to do STEM related things when I grew up. But I also had this other interest uh, that kind of like developed when I was a teenager. And uh, I read L.L. Cavalli Fortz's book, History and Geography of Human Genes, uh, the unabridged form uh, when I was an undergrad at University of Oregon. I read it front to back. Uh, that was published, I think, in 96. And it was a summation of his life's work from like the 1950s onward. And it used about, what was it? it used about like maybe like 40 markers in the human genome. And he had assembled a data set of a couple of thousand individuals. And, uh, you know, he just analyzed it with principal component maps and principal component analysis and phylogenetic trees and uh, kind of explained how the populations relate to each other and how they relate to history. And I was pretty captivated by it. But, you know, I didn't think it related to anything that I would ever do because, you know, I was majoring in biochemistry at the time. And, you know, in the 1990s, when I was a kid, uh, it was really the age of molecular biology still. Uh, that was the sexy area of life science. And I just assumed if I was going to do anything biological related, it would have to do with that scale. You know, um, I have I'll give you a quote. A friend of mine told me in the 1990s, uh, a colleague of his uh, uh, was um, was thinking about going to population genetics. And uh, and, uh, you know, people were saying, you know, what do you call a population geneticist? And that the punchline was emeritus because it was seen to be, you know, like, look, that was something from like decades ago. And now we have all these DNA, you know, analysis tools. And then genomics happened. And all of a sudden, population genetics became relevant again, because instead of a single sequence, you know, we're talking millions of sequences, you know, so I have in my computer, tens of thousands of human genotypes with like, you know, four or 500,000 markers. And I just analyze them whenever I want to. You know? Can you, can you, for people that that don't know and don't have a background in genetics, what's the difference between genetics as as a field generally and population genetics specifically? Yeah, um, I'll give like a really the really precise way to understand population genetics would be so genetics as a field has origins in Mendel's theories. Um, you know, Mendel's like laws of inheritance, independent assortment, law of segregation. But you know, the easiest way you think about it is to think about a pedigree. How are characteristics transmitted through the pedigree? And that's how you have like recessive, dominant, all of these other things, right? And, uh, you know, individual contributes half of their genes and, you know, the individual gets half from each parent and, you know, there's one half related across. So there's this whole formal framework using this concept of genes uh, that are in the discrete particulate inheritance model that are um, inherited, right? And so that was rediscovered around 1900 by a bunch of different people and it blossomed into this whole field and they discovered things like genetic recombination, which is actually uh, a way to explore assortment and stuff like that linkage, <coughs> excuse me. And so that's genetics. 
simultaneous to that, there's another field called biometry. Uh, and that comes out of, um, you know, original Darwinism, uh, Charles Darwin's theories, kind of more formalism, uh, you know, Carl Pearson, you know, it came out of a lot of Galton's work. And it's a way to kind of like understand evolutionary change over time quantitatively, right? And genetics, Mendelism, and uh, and this biometry originally seemed to kind of be rivals. And then uh, R.A. Fisher, basically, uh, R.A. Fisher, the, one of the major founders of modern statistics, you know, uh, you know, like p-values, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, actually, ANOVA, I think p-value was nine minutes. Anyway, aside from that, he's a frequentist, right? Um, and But he was also an evolutionary geneticist, and he, he was trained in mathematics, but he was super interested in evolution his whole life. And so what he did is he showed how using the Mendelian particulate inheritance model, uh, when you scale up with the number of genes, that actually results in the same type of patterns that you would expect uh, from biometry. And so the two are actually just different ends of the distribution. And what population genetics did was um, fuse the two and then kind of start out with this formal model. So Hardy-Weinberg, P squared plus 2PQ plus Q squared equals one. Everyone knows that. That's kind of like a tautology. So it's like two variations of a gene at given frequencies, how will they combine in terms of the different genotype frequencies, right? So this is like, okay, you start out with these premises. Now, population genetics really is kind of the working out of these premises and understanding formal models of how gene frequencies change as a function of time due to different evolutionary forces. So one of the forces is random genetic drift. I mean, people understand that. It's just randomness, stochastic, boom, 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 here and there. Another of the fortunes is natural selection. This is Darwinism, right? So natural selection changes gene frequencies by if the gene is good for you, it'll increase the frequency up to 100%, like kind of like sweeping up, right? Um, if it's bad for you, it'll keep it out of the gene pool. Um, and then you have other things like migration and then, of course, mutation. So mutation is a genetic process. You know, the term emerged in genetics in the early 20th century. Today, we know what mutation is biophysically because we understand DNA which is the substrate of inheritance. So and originally Mendel didn't know about DNA, right? He just saw the inherited patterns. So he understood how DNA manifested itself uh, in genetic analysis, genetic, you know, and then later in the first couple of decades, I think they understood, there was suspicions that DNA was the substrate of inheritance considerably before uh, Watson and Crick uh, nailed down its exact uh, structure, right? But once you nail down the structure, Okay, you know what it is, you can target it, you can figure it out. And so things like meiosis, uh, for example, which is a genetic understanding of how you take uh, diploid genomes and you you know do recombination and then you turn them into haploid uh, copies for your sex cells. That's originally understood in, in genetics, in classical genetics as a model. And now we have DNA and you understand actually biophysically how the strands of the DNA are snapping together and why they snap together, where they snap together. And so everything kind of comes together um, today um, in genetics where you have molecular biology that understands the biophysical process. You have classical genetics that's in, focused on the inheritance. Um, and then you have like say genomics and population genetics that's uh, more interested in aggregate numbers and frequencies and say like summary statistics maybe. Okay, so so population genetics is really the the branch of genetics which is concerned with quantifying how genetic variation um, changes throughout populations of organisms. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a perfect definition. Yeah. And so, you know, when you start to think through the lens of population genetics, 
and you think about how patterns are changing in entire populations of organisms, you can start to understand how a given group got to where it is today. And you can also make predictions about where it might go tomorrow, depending yep. on the evolutionary forces that are acting upon it. Yep. And of course, one of the most interesting stories is the story of human evolution, which is the yep. one that you focus primarily on. Yeah, I want to ask you about a general topic, but you have this one article that is super interesting. And at the top of the article, you've got two cartoon images. Uh, they're basically two different versions of the human evolutionary tree. One of them is our 2000, the year 2000 state of understanding of human evolution. And the other mm -hmm. one is our year 2021 or present day understanding. Yeah. And they look very different from each other. So can you describe why that is and, and how much the story of human evolution has changed in the last 20 years and, and really what was driving that? Yeah, so a lot of why it is, is data. Um, we have a lot of it. Uh, look, I mean, you know, just for the listener, the viewers, uh, the current generation of, uh, of biologists um, uh, are, you know, not, not the ones that are like 25, but let's say like mature career biologists. They emerged in a world where they did data analysis with spreadsheets, you know, and like maybe like a four by 30 matrix, you know, and now today we have terabytes of data in any given lab, you know, so the data is there to test hypotheses that required a certain statistical power. Now, part of the issue is, and I, I think I did get into the, in, in the piece is a little bit is, um, a lot of population and statistical genesis were aware that that model could very well be sim too simple because we didn't have the power to test more complicated models with more subtle effects, if that makes sense, because we didn't have the data. And if you can't test it, it's just a conjecture. But, you know, science has a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, has a bias towards parsimony. And the model in the year 2000 where you have uh, you know, humans expanding out of Africa from one small tribe and replacing, so expanding in Africa and then out of Africa, like one small tribe. So in the late 1980s, there's a documentary on Nova. You can find it on YouTube. And, there, you know, the whole thing is like mitochondrial Eve. And she was a member of one small tribe that conquered the world. And that's kind of the story uh, that was told in the public. Now, some geneticists and some paleoanthropologists would say, well, it was more complicated privately. And I'm like, well, whatever. Like, you guys were not saying this to the regular people. So you obviously didn't have the courage of your convictions. You know, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you can say like, oh, well, we always had concerns. But it's like, that's not what you're telling everybody else. So, you know, that that's my attitude about it. Because sometimes people will say, well, there's, and there's papers that showed, you know, like, we can't draw these conclusions with a high degree of statistical certainty because we only have like a little bit of data right we didn't have any ancient data and so also like everything that we had so if you have a phylogenetic tree before you had ancient dna you're sampling the tips of the tree and you're using the distributions on the tips of the tree to figure out the topology of the tree to figure out the structure of the tree well that's okay that's not that's not totally off uh like for example like all of the new genomics has confirmed the very early work that humans are more closely related to chimpanzees than either are to gorillas. The gorillas are the outgroup. And then you have the orangutans and then you have the gribbons, right? So that was all discovered in the 70s. Well, it was pretty much assumed and believed, I think, through morphological analysis of, of 
bones and stuff like that and like looking at our characteristics. But the 1970s, the earliest molecular molecular evolutionists figured it out through, I think, proteins and stuff like that, right? And now we have much better understanding of that relationship and all the details, but the broad outlines are still there. What we do though, is like you add tips to the branches, you add connections. So, you know, there is work that there might've been a period of chimp human hybridization four to 6 million years ago. That doesn't change the broader story, but it adds a twist, you know, like a twist to the tree in the phylogeny in quite literal sense. Like it splits, goes back up and splits is what the model is. And that model comes from looking at whole genome sequences of all 3 billion base pairs, which obviously we didn't have 3 billion, uh, 30 years ago. I see. So, so basically, if you go back to approximately the year 2000, the basic model that anthropologists and biologists had of, for how humans became modern humans and spread throughout the world was we're all descended from a single population that came somewhere out of East Africa. Um, it then spread throughout the world and replaced all other populations of humans. And there were other, what you're saying is there were other models that were more sophisticated and, and more complex. But around the year 2000, we simply didn't have all of the data, including ancient DNA from extinct humans and extinct other species that allowed us to test whether or not anything beyond that simple out of Africa model was true. But today we do. And that's why the story has changed. Yeah. We got way more data. Yeah. And so what are some of the most salient changes to that story? Um, you know, one of them that I'll direct you to is just, you know, there, there was always this sort of, uh, controversy, I think, between the what I'll call the strict out of Africa replacement model of how humans became modern humans versus something called the multi-regional story. So what were those two ideas and how did they sort the balance between them shift as we got more of this data? Yeah. So um, out of Africa is really straightforward. So you start out with a single tribe and everybody is descended 100% from that tribe. So that means we replaced Neanderthals, replaced all the other humans in the world. It was, you know, it was known it's long been known there must have been other hominins. I think the term is hominins. I'll just say humans, okay? I think everything that's homo is human. Other types of humans in East Asia, because we found their artifacts, right? We know that there are people there, uh, but um, it looks like everyone, Chinese, uh, Europeans, you know, Khoisan, uh, Yoruba, everyone's descended from these people uh, that are probably African because Africa has most of the variation. And, you know, when you look at distributions of trees, if everyone's nested within African populations, well, you know, it's not impossible that we're not African, but it's probably likely that everyone, if everyone looks genetically a subset of Africans, we're probably from Africans. We're probably African, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's just like the statistical probabilities are so high. So that's what they saw. So, I mean, it's a, it's a parsimonious model. And, you know, we saw like 50, 60,000 years ago, you know, new types of, um, archaeological um just like uh, toolkits and stuff like that and it seems like you know something swept across the world well that something was like you know superhuman homo sapiens sapiens blah 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 all that stuff right those it's a good model and also we have uh we have ideas um you know from uh, uh monotheistic religions of a garden of eden and people expanding out it fit pretty well. And you had mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam, like these, these words. So everything was kind of like rigged to make that plausible, right? Um, the other idea is multi-regionalism. Multi-regionalism is really centered around University of Michigan. Uh, Milford Wolf, Milford Wolf, Wolfhoff is a big promoter of that. And multi-regionalism is like that actually like humans over the last 2 million years have um, 
kind of evolved together across the world through gene flow and sweeps. And it's a much more complicated dynamic. And some of the features you see in modern Europeans and, and Australians might be due to admixture with local populations in Eurasia that lived there before the expansion of, say, the dominant wave. Um, and so, you know, there are some forms of multi-regionalism that are very balanced where it's like, oh, well, like, you know, modern Europeans are like 70% Paleo-European and 30% African and Africans are the reverse. There's always gene flow involved, right? Um, but some of them are balanced. And then some of them admit that, oh, actually, there was a dominant African population, but there's a lot of ancestry from local populations um, in the model. So, you know, everybody in Europe is 15%. Paleo-European, everyone in Asia is 15% paleo. And so that creates the distinctiveness of the different human races, you know, um, in terms, in some sense, they think that, that some of the distinctive aspects of different human populations come from these deeply rooted differences that go back millions of years in the region. And so that's one of the arguments for multi-regionalism. And that's really based um, on fossils. Um, it looked like the gene peep, basically the genetic analysis of mitochondrial DNA, which is passed maternally, showed that that couldn't be right. But there was actually statistical reasons why people oversold that. And a lot of geneticists actually did privately tell the multi-regionalists, like, look, we haven't totally really refuted your model. Um, you know, we just made it maybe less likely, but we need more data. But, you know, they they would tell people that and people would just be like, OK, whatever, you're just racist. So that was that was a serious problem. Multi-regionalism had a air of racism because they're saying that different human populations have deep differences in some sense from the past, right? Whereas the out of Africa seemed like, oh, well, we're all, it's like, you know, Richard Dawkins used to wear like, we are all African and we're all like a really young species and we're all from the same population. <clears throat> the way the multi-regionalists would respond is like, you're saying that we're basically genocidal. Like we exterminated everybody else. Like your, your idea of human nature is really bad. So I think that there got to be, um, some bad feeling uh some of the bad feeling in chris stringer who was like the primary out of africa guy in the paleo space and wolpoff who i'm friendly with both of them wolpoff in particular uh still has bad feelings he's told me and he's told me publicly so i can repeat it um on my podcast before years ago with stringer about like you know what happened and i think a lot of it had to do with the the sliming and the um the negativity directed towards the multi-regional people as racist you know yeah. And I think all of that stuff is kind of ridiculous, but whatever, it's what happened. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, setting, setting sort of the, uh, the, the professional uh, squabbles and debates aside um, that got us to where we are today in our understanding of human evolution. When you talk about something like multi-regionalism or the idea that there was gene flow between distinct populations of humans or even different species of humans that once lived and modern humans, what exactly do, can you give some examples? So, so example number one that most people talk about is humans and Neanderthals. But what, what are some of the examples where we know there was definitely gene flow between different populations in different parts of the world? You mean really ancient? So like, yes. Yes. Okay. So Neanderthals are one. So Neanderthals diverge from our own lineage, depending on what molecular clock and estimator used, probably five hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand years ago. Um, the, the deepest divergence between modern human lineages is the Khoisan Bushmen and other humans at most 300,000 years ago, but really probably 150. I'm being a little cagey about it because it depends on your parameter estimates and some models, right? But whatever. Um, it's considerably more than between any of the modern human lineages, right? 
Um, Denisovans are another population in Asia. There are multiple Denisovan populations. So with Neanderthals, it looks like they're genetically homogenous from the Altai to Spain. And it looks like they went almost extinct multiple times and came back from small founder populations. I think we understand why this is. Like, look at the ecology of Northern Eurasia during the Ice Age. Um, it's very it's very precarious, you know? In contrast, Denisovans, uh, they're named after Denisova Cave in the Altai in Mongolia, where also um, Neanderthals lived. And uh, before I forget, um, geneticists, genomicists have discovered uh, a girl who's half Denisovan, half Neanderthal, who's literally a first generation um, cross. So that happened. So it's not just modern humans, you know? Uh, so the Denisovans lived in East Asia. Uh, they lived in Mongolia. They probably lived in Southeast Asia. Um, 5% of the ancestry. So Neanderthal ancestry is like 1.5 to 2.5% outside of Africa. It's much lower within Africa. It's probably mostly back to African migration, right? <clears throat> um, Europeans are like closer to 1.5, uh, Middle Eastern in particular, and then um, East Asians to 2.5. Uh, in Papua New Guinea, you have populations that are about 5% Denisovan. Um, Australian Aborigines, if they were pure, quote unquote, are probably also 5%, but there's very few full-blooded Australian Aborigines left, right? Um, there is a population in the Philippines called uh, the Philippine Negritos, and uh, they're about like 20, they're about like, they're about like 60% like other Filipinos, like Austronesian farmers, but 40% of their ancestry is, you know, they says Negrito, like little Negro, it's like they're dark skinned, curly haired, they were clearly an indigenous population that lived there earlier, and uh, these Philippine Negritos have like a couple of percent. Uh, or like two to three percent Denisovan. So if you do the math, it looks like before they were mixed with the Austronesians, they were the most Denisovan population in the world, more than five percent. Right. The last two thousand years, they've kind of been mixed in, and so that's produced. These Denisovan populations are not like the Neanderthals. They're not homogenous. Some of them are deeply separated. Some of them are separated like 100, 200, 300,000 years ago. Right. And so, like I said, they are more distinct than modern human races, modern human populations. I think so, so in the past several hundred thousand years, there were points in time when you had modern humans and other, I guess we would call them subspecies of humans that lived in different parts of the globe. Neanderthals are one example. Denisovans are another example. And they're distinct. You can tell them apart genetically. And yet they were still capable of reproducing with one another. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... No, no question. Um, actually, there's, but wait, there's more. <laughs> so actually, um, there's Neanderthal genomes from the Altai, and also like there's some evidence from Y and mtDNA. Um, it looks like so. You know, the word modern human is a little fraught. Like, I mean, I like to say like neo, you know, neo African. Another thing that's becoming common is stem human because it's the stem lineage to the modern populations, right? But in any case, um, I'll just say Neo-African because it makes it easier. So these Neo-African populations, it looks like our, the primary wave that led to everybody outside of Africa, uh, me and you, just judging by your look, you know, um, left about like 60, 65,000 years ago, 60,000 years ago, right? But it looks like there are Neanderthal samples from like 100, 120,000 years ago in the Altai that have something that's much closer to modern humans, to Neo-Africans than anything else. So that means to me that, that there were earlier migrations uh, that were absorbed into Neanderthals and probably Denisovans, okay? They're not at like really high fractions. Like, so we're like, you know, 2% or whatever Neanderthal. Well, those Altai Neanderthals were 2% Neo-African. And so they themselves mixed in 
with the neo the second wave of neo-africans had a little bit of modern human ancestry and there's natural selection for modern some some of this neo-african genomes like genes had some useful things and there's evidence of selection within neanderthals so some of the multi-regional arguments of these ancient populations exhibiting gene flow and influencing each other does seem to be true to me where the multi-regional argument is weak is the fraction of this eurasian hominin eurasian human is actually pretty low uh, everywhere. So I didn't mention Denisovan ancestry is actually present everywhere. Pretty much it's detectable everywhere east of the Indus River. Um, and so, but it's a really low fraction. So you're talking about statistical power. Um, you know, we have whole genomes now with thousands, tens of thousands, millions of genomes, you know, we can compare. So now we can detect that like Chinese people, Han Chinese are like 0.15% Denisovan. Uh, people in mainland Southeast Asia are like 0.25%. People in India are like 0.2%, 0.15%. And we even know, and these are low percentages, like less than 1%, but we even know um, that there are different Denisovan populations. So the Denisovan population that's discovered, the only full genome that we have only full genomes we have are from Mongolian population of the Altai. And researchers can tell that the Chinese uh, have contribution definitely from that group. Mm -hmm. uh, Papua, people in Papua New Guinea have contribution from a different Denisovan group that's pretty distinct, which would make sense. Look, look at where Papua New Guinea is, right? So there's a Southeast Asian Denisovan group. And there's even research. I mean, I'm like going on because it's complicated. But there's even research that people in Papua have like two two or three pulses of Denisovan admixture, which means that they might have moved through territory in Southeast Asia before getting to Papua, where they mixed with Denisovan group one, then they mixed with Denisovan group three, and then Den or Denisovan group two, and then three, right? And so this is, it might be interesting, it might not be interesting. It depends on who you are. We have the statistical power, we have the technology, we can now know and understand, right? So just to make it really clear for people, so who were the Denisovans and when did they live? Um, in particular, you know, where on the globe did you find Denisovan populations yeah. and what, what did they look like compared to um, our direct ancestors? Yeah. Um, so Denisovans are, if um, if we are the cousins of Neanderthals, Denisovans are the brothers or sisters. So it looks like um, they come from a same. So there was an earlier out of Africa expansion is what it looks like. And it looks like Neanderthals and Denisovans are part of that earlier out of Africa. I think Homo heidelbergensis is the one, but in any case. And so they separate, um, you know, pretty soon afterwards after that. So I told you 500 to 750,000. I think there used to be younger dates of three to 400,000, but I think that's out of date. So 500 to 750,000 is when our lineage, the stem African, neo-Africans, modern humans separates from the Neanderthalvans. And then, you know, 50 to 100,000 years after that, the Neanderthalvans differentiate. And so if Neanderthals are in Western Eurasia, so basically Neanderthals, it looks like they probably got as far south as Northern Israel sometimes when the climate was cold, you know? Um, but in any case, they're always um, west of Mongolia, uh, west of China, and looks like uh, like like they're in Iran, probably Afghanistan, but probably not India. It looks like Denisovans occupied Asia, east of the Indus, like East Asia, and into Southeast Asia, right? So Denisovans are basically East Eurasian hominins, East Eurasian humans. And unlike Neanderthals, there are very, very distinct multiple populations. I think probably because Neanderthals didn't have um, ecological depth. So when the ice expanded and there was a cold snap, even during the middle of the Pleistocene, they had they had nowhere to go. Like they, where they had to go was the Mediterranean, nowhere to go, right? 
Um, so it was against the sea. Whereas the Nian, the Denisovan populations, you know, they had Southeast Asia, they had India, they had coast like you know, Taiwan, Japan was like much bigger and connected to the mainland at that period. And so they had large populations that were quite diverse uh, before their absorption into modern humans. And, you know, another thing that's really interesting about how the story of human evolution has changed over the past couple of decades is the story of the, the Neanderthals themselves. You know, my understanding is, you know, 20 plus years ago, most people, including most anthropologists, um, basically thought of Neanderthals as, you know, stupid cavemen um, that weren't, were not uh, nearly as sophisticated as early modern humans in terms of their cognitive abilities, their culture, their capacity for art and language and things like this. How has that aspect of what we understand about Neanderthals changed in the past couple of decades? Yeah, I mean, I think you correctly de correctly described the general shift. Basically, um, back when we didn't think Neanderthals were our ancestors, they were animals. And then in 2010, um, discovered that like everybody outside of Africa has Neanderthal ancestry for sure. And now we know everyone inside of Africa pretty much does. It's just much lower levels. Um, all of a sudden we have a strange new respect, you know, um, and things that are automatically identified as modern human artifacts. They're revisiting and like, Oh, actually like there's probably Neanderthal artifacts. So I think um, Neanderthals have been quote humanized. I think they always were human. Um, they have been humanized um, and rehabilitated. Uh, and, um, yeah, uh, you know, uh, there's a, a paleoanthropologist at Stanford, Richard Klein, who wrote a book, Dawn of, it was like Dawn of Human Culture. And it was like basically saying that, like, he basically was wondering whether Neanderthals could even have language, you know? I mean, so like, pretty intense, you know, there were like theories of Neanderthals, like they were like as furry as gorillas and all this stuff. And. Um, so, yeah, we, we've gone a long way, partly just like it's human bias where we don't want to think our ancestors were animals and bestial. So now we are looking really closely, whereas before we just were like, you know, they're not us. So, you know, they can do Jack and that's why they're not around and we're around. So that was the theory. Um, you know, there probably are still strong differences. And genetically, Neanderthal, the Neanderthal admixture we have did seem to get selected against in the genome. It caused some incompatibilities, you know, so it wasn't a perfect fit. We diverged some. Um, and I think we were quite different, probably, but, you know, uh, not as different as we as we would think. And like, look, I mean, we have sex with them. Well, I mean, what do we know that Neanderthals were capable of in terms of, um, you know, anything that we would describe as more sophisticated behavior in terms of things like culture? Did they produce cave art? Did do we? Yeah, think so that they, you know, I think I think like what that? you're alluding to is like the result in Spain, where I think they assumed that it had to be moderns and they had better dating. It looks like kind of like abstract representational art um, in Spain is what it looks like, and I, you know, they did so. They, it does look like they did cave art. I think they found some not ivory, but maybe some stone figures that might've been carved by Neanderthals. Like I, I'm not a paleoanthropologist, so I don't know this off the top of my head, but they are discovering a lot of things. A lot of it has to do with rechecking the dates uh, on things because um, it had just been assumed that this could only be modern human. And, you know, Neanderthals themselves seem to have, so they, they're, I think they're, um, their cult archeological tool is called the Moustrian, but um, by the end, they create. It looks like they created a different, a different uh, archaeological toolkit with the influence and synthesis, with the new humans coming from the south of the east, uh, the Chattel Peronian. Now, there's arguments whether Neanderthals did it or not. I think they probably did, 
So it looks like Neanderthals are dynamic and adaptive, uh, were in the face of the newcomers, even though they were eventually absorbed. And um, there's there's good, I mean, they were they were outcompeted, right? And mom, a lot of modern human groups are also outcompeted by other groups. So it's not a big shock. So um, I think um, if you're, if you, I think maybe, let me just ask, like, are you asking whether we were superior to them or something? I don't know. No, I'm I'm just asking sort of what's what's the state of knowledge in terms of what like Neanderthals were capable of and cognitively. Like did they have the the major elements of culture that we normally associate with higher cognitive function, you know, yeah. things like language, things like art, things like uh, commerce so my, and trade. Okay, so the art thing is like a little weird because like that would depend on like what archaeologists can find and how they date them. It looks like they might have had some art. Trade, I don't I think that they haven't I think it's been found that Neanderthals didn't seem to go very far for their flint and other things, although I need to check on that. But I think like Matt Ridley's talked about how it's quite clear that uh, the new modern humans have much bigger trade networks, okay? Um, in terms of language, I'm pretty sure they had something like language, uh, just because uh, it seems like, uh, from what I've looked at, like the genetics of language and stuff like that, that this is not like a super new characteristic. Like It could be like basal to our group. Like it could be like a common characteristic pretty deep in, in human. Now their language might not have been Maybe it wasn't as complicated or it wasn't like e as, e as easy to use it for abstraction. I don't know. Um, and that could have been genetic. Their brains do look somewhat different. They're shaped somewhat different. And there's some genes related to brains. There's some papers out about it where we're different than Neanderthals. I'm just very cautious about the idea that we can just look at differences and figure it out that way, you know, because hu modern humans are also different. My brain's different than yours, you know, so we need to be careful about that. Um, but I think... Um, I think if they were alive today, they would be different. But I also think no one would think about doing an experiment on them. I think they would be given human rights, but they're different. They would be I different, I, I suspect. So, yeah, I so we would, in your view, we would likely notice differences between them and the people walking around today, but we would still re recognize them as humans, basically. Yeah. And like, so for example, it could be, there could be something weird. Like people have talked about, well, they lived in this like, you know, kind of like open scrubland, like south of the ice sheets uh, as big game hunters. Maybe they had really good visual spatial kills. So maybe it was like maybe you you could like uh, maybe you could, you know, try to have Neanderthal write a poem. And like Neanderthal's got like no skills at that. But then you give them a Rubik's Cube and they're like, uh, you know, I, I just wouldn't be surprised because they had big brains. Like it's well-known fact. Their brains are bigger than most modern. Well, actually, like I think. Neanderthals and Ice Age humans like 20 or 30,000 years ago in northern Eurasia had the biggest brains. And it seems that cold climates tend to produce bigger brains. Might be something metabolic. I don't know. But everyone knows Neanderthals had big brains. So what do they do with that brain? You know, maybe they just did different things with that brain um, in terms of maybe it was like more, you know, visual, spatial, like memory for the landscape and stuff like that. Right. So mm -hmm. and you know, one of the key pieces that has informed how our knowledge has grown and changed with respect to human evolution in the last 20 years. You mentioned this earlier has to do with technology and in particular, our ability to obtain genome sequences from long dead individuals to go and actually yeah. take bits of Neanderthal bone or Denisovan bone, extract DNA from it and look at the genome and, and sequence the genome and compare it to um, you know, modern genomes and other ancient genomes. Can you give people like a basic sense for like how that technology developed and, and what the specific, some of the specific major innovations were? Like what exactly is going on there that allows us to do this ancient genomic work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so high level, cause it's not my thing, but uh, basically 
the initial time and the initial wave of doing this work was in the 1990s and it was all false positives it was all it was all contamination <laughs> right so Swante Pabo Neanderthal man you guys probably heard of the book you know he did a lot of early publications that were probably all contamination um so that's one thing right um so you know uh they have um ancient DNA rooms are you know like from what I've seen there's they're 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 like uh, you know like nuclear laboratories or uh you know people who work with hiv or maybe anthrax uh they have to keep it really clean okay that's one thing contamination now um the other thing is when you extract dna when you extract uh sequences from ancient dna uh most of it's crap most of it's uh either um like like a lot of times a lot of it's back mostly bacteria right so you got to like pull the bacteria out well we now have computational algorithms that can snap out all the bacterial reads so when you do a sequencing, you generate reads like these strings and, um, you know, modern computational algorithms, computers can just like slurp out all of the non-human. Okay. So um, you could do something like, okay, anything that's not ape, pull it out. Right. Cause, cause it turns out there are no apes in Europe at that time, probably besides Neanderthals. Right. So if it's ape DNA, it's probably Neanderthal. Okay. Um, once you look at those, sequences uh that are human that's that's left um you can amplify a pcr amplification all these things that those tools are available but there is a pattern of dna damage um like i think it's deamination there's a pattern of dna damage that they that we now know empirically occurs uh as dna gets older and older and you can filter those or you could try to infer like, you know, what the undamaged ones, like what they changed from, what they mutated over from, right? So we have a lot of learning in that area. I think the final thing I want to say, and like, this is just really quickly, but the final thing I want to say, because it's much deeper than this, obviously, like, like there's a whole area of forensic genomics, actually. <laughs> like my friend, um, David Middleman, his company, Authorum, uh, it's been like, they've been in the New York Times like dozens of times now doing uh, cold cases. Uh, and it's, they use the same methods, you know? Uh, and this is for cases of like humans like 50 years ago and stuff. So it's much easier in some ways. But um, although like, you know, the police labs don't always have the best preservation methods. But in any case, um, they found that there's a bone in your inner ear. So usually, you know, they were looking for bone, but then they were looking inside teeth. Like, where is DNA going to preserve? There's a bone in your inner ear that's really sealed and is extremely rich in DNA. And so, you know, if they find that bone, it's much easier. They don't find that bone. They can get it from elsewhere, but the DNA yield is going to be is much lower, probably. I think teeth is another thing that they do, right? So, yeah, that so they've learned a lot of things. Like they didn't know anything about that. That was just like a random find. They're like, oh my god, this this inner ear bone has all this DNA, and so now they always look for that, right? So, so I think it's a combination of of the molecular biology is getting better and better over time. Computational techniques allow you to extract signal from the noise. And then finally, you have the issue uh, with discovering this bone, like discovering which areas of ancient fossils have DNA, you know, particularly for humans, but not just for humans. You know, mm -hmm. there's a whole mammalian ancient genome thing going and, on. And so as the technology improved and we learned some of these tricks and we got more of this data in a usable format so we can compare genomes from all sorts of people, you know, hu modern humans alive today, Neanderthals. Um, our ancestors, you know, going back thousands and thousands of years, what, um, you know, to what extent is genetic evolution still 
still uh, driving uh, human change today? Have have we have we gone beyond the? the no, uh, no, no, no. Okay, no, no. okay. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of it is um. All right. Uh, so a lot of it is um, uh, a lot of this has to do with the fact that we didn't have statistical power to detect recent evolution. So there are a lot of techniques developed with modern DNA um, that basically uh, stopped like it couldn't detect anything like less than 3000 years ago, something like that, 2000. Right. And so, you know, of course, we're not going to detect selection sweeps that are recent because we can't. Now we can, uh, partly through like big genomic analyses, ancient DNA, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, like you look at the whole genome, you look at lots of whole genomes. Okay, like you increase the sample size that way, and then you get temporal transects. You get ancient genomes, so then you can like see directly. So, for example, um, you know, lactose tolerance—that gene that's common in Northern Europe in particular—you know, we now know that selection for that has been ongoing the last couple of thousand years. Nobody knows why, but it has. It started really late. It started two to three thousand years ago. It was way later than people hmm. used to think. You know, that's um, so. So that that's the the gene that allows us to uh, digest milk past milk our childhood yeah. years. Lactose, lactose, yeah, milk yeah. sugar, right? <laughs> so uh, yes, as an adult, um, so that's a mutation, and it's present at low frequencies throughout like central Eurasia for like thousands of years, and then it just started shooting up in frequency over the last couple of thousand years. So that's a recent thing. Um, also, Europeans seem to be Northern Europeans seem to be getting lighter skinned over the last couple of thousand years. Um, there's been multiple ups and downs in height across world populations. Like, you know, populations adopt agriculture, they get small, then they discover like, you know, agro pastoralism, they get big. So weird things like that happen. Uh, there's selection. Um, there is selection like in Bangladesh, where my family's from, there's actually selection against cholera. Like, uh, there's like genes that give you resistance to cholera. You understand why that would be, right? But cholera is like hasn't been around forever. Cholera doesn't exist unless you have like pretty large villages with bad water. Like hunter gatherers would never really get cholera. Mm, you know, I see. So that's definitely recent. So there's a lot of things related to um, the immunological function um, and stuff like that that have been detected. I think um, you know to get like spicy, but you know I think that we'll probably discover uh, you know personality and biobehavioral things too um i think that um i think a lot of hunter gatherers probably went insane uh in the first villages being around that, that many people over and over so what why why do you think that just because it was so different of uh, of a lifestyle compared to what well, i mean I, I don't know are you introverted or extroverted uh, i'm definitely more introverted yeah so introverted i'm not i'm not introverted introverted people tell me that like you know they're in a room with a lot of people and they just need time to recharge afterwards you know, oh, like, yeah. I don't get that, right? If if you're a hunter gatherer, you might be like really a lot like that, you know, because also like you're living in the same small group your whole life. Most of the people you encounter who are strangers, you're going to be kind of skeptical of, because uh, you probably mm. don't need to interact with other people except for maybe like some religious ceremonies, mate exchange, and a little bit of trade. But aside from that, it's like you know, it's what you would call autarky, right? Like, what, what does that mean? That just means like you produce all of your economic goods and goods and services and necessities yourself within your community. Um, you know, you're a hunter gatherer, right? You don't really that need that much from outside. And so why would you want to interact with other people? They're just dangerous. Then you live in a village and that's all different. All of a sudden there starts to be specialization. You know, you need to have a big man. Some people need to be artisans. Um, and then also, you know, in a, in a, 
ancestral like clan. It's like relatively small. Everyone can keep track of everybody else. The village starts getting big. You just start having rules that everyone agrees on. You gotta have rules. You gotta talk about it. You gotta talk it out. You gotta have priests maybe. And then also you're a dude and you're going out to the fields and your wife is in the village. Now there's all these other dudes around. Now you're starting to get sketch, you know? Like all sorts mm. of things start crop, cropping up. So a lot of these are going to be cultural adaptations, but I would also wouldn't be surprised if social adapt. Like, for example, um, you know, this has like explicitly been hypothesized. Uh, the psychopathic personality, which is very amoral, um, and they lie a lot, <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of con men are psychopaths, right? Um, there's an argument that that personality could not have existed before large villages. Right. You, just you because everyone knew everyone and, and you'd be able to everyone would know that person and be able yeah. to if say you're a psychopath honestly they would probably kill you when you're 10 or something like that they just they would start recognizing this person is off and because you can't run away to another tribe probably they would probably kill you like you're a stranger right so a psychopathic like these sorts of like social like uh, pathological personalities probably would not been able to exist in, in in like you know a lot of these hunter gatherer societies but once you have cities especially that's perfect environment like you could screw someone over and then like go to another neighborhood yeah so basically what you're what you're saying is simply that as we transition from being small bands of hunter gatherers engaged in foraging, foraging behavior where we lived with probably dozens at most probably a hundred or two individuals in the tribe and we became sedentary and villages and cities and civilizations grew, there was way more people around. And so that meant two things. A, um, certain new personality types may have become adaptive that weren't adaptive in the hunter-gatherer foraging bands. And B, there was just sort of a relaxation on the constraints that were present in the hunter-gatherer foraging bands. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's a new environment, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that people always talk about when we talk about human evolution and how humans sort of spread and took over the globe and developed civilization and everything is, of course, you know, our brains. We've got big brains. We're a really smart animal. We're capable of doing things like language and symbolic cognition. And we have, you know, a, we have a very rich set of cultural practices that just allow us to do things that most animals mostly can't do. Yeah. And so, but when we talk about the subject of intelligence itself, um, in the contribution of culture and genetics and things like that there. Um, it's a fascinating subject. It's also a very controversial subject. So what do we know in the context of the story of human evolution and us, you know, expanding throughout the globe? What, what was the role of intelligence in that? How much did um, genetic factors influence that? What does intelligence even mean? And how do we think about, you know, the types of cognition that humans have that really made the difference that enabled mm -hmm. us to populate the entire globe? Yeah, so there's a couple of things like we can go over. Um, okay, so um, I guess the first thing is um, the human. We from skulls, we know for a fact that our, our brains have been getting bigger uh, over a, like over a million years, a uh, million and a half years, up until about two hundred thousand years ago, and then it kind of petered off. In terms of like, we're not really that much, you know. Like I said, Neanderthals and some some modern humans like. 30, 40,000 years ago had the biggest brains of all, right? So um, in terms of brain size itself, um, you know, we kept getting bigger and bigger to the point where uh, today, um, what is it like? Uh, 
25% of your calories are absorbed by your brain. Okay, at resting. That's a lot. Like we have massive brains for mammals. I'm sure some of your listeners and, re- and viewers have seen the encephalization chart, which shows like for our body size, our brains are huge, right? Like we're like, maybe we're not as extreme as a shrew, but <laughs> we're like the mega mammal version of a shrew, you know? Um, so, so that's a thing and that's expensive and you don't do anything expensive unless it's fit. And so there's all sorts of hypotheses why our brains got big. Like one of the hypotheses you probably heard about is it's gossip and socialization. Um, you know, we have to keep all of these human relationships in our brain, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but obviously, um, I mean, we're not stupid. Uh, um, it's, uh, we were doing, you know, with our tools, I mean, the gossip theory is fine, but like we, we we had some pretty intense tools, right? Like we had some like good things going on. And so um, I think we had general abilities, right? So there's a differentiation between uh, specific competencies and uh, general abilities. So core competency would be like language is like a, a fluency that everyone has. Everyone can learn language in a way that a chimpanzee cannot. So let's say that's like that's like a specialized competency, right? It's a it's a faculty um it's a specialization uh it's like we have an organ a language organ in the brain right um but um we also have domain general intelligence so domain general intelligence is basically our brain can adapt to new uh new tasks that um you know like for example uh i have a friend uh mathematical area of study is topology i don't get it um none of his ancestors knew topology and it's totally novel to cave people, right? But he has general intelligence and he figured it out. And so that's, I think, when you're talking about intelligence and IQ, that's 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 that, right? Which is different from our other competencies like language, et cetera. You know, so, you know, someone could have a PhD from Princeton and someone could be, you know, get their GED and there's a big IQ difference, but they both have core competency of language in contrast to someone maybe has more extreme form of Down syndrome or something like that, right? So we, we code this different ways. Like, let's move on to like IQ and, and like general intelligence though, because I think it's maybe what you're uh, ultimately getting at. And um, that trait has a normal distribution of the population, as we know. Um, normal distributions are generally associated with traits whose uh, selection, whose benefit is not clear uh, for the population over a long period of time. Otherwise, the variation would disappear as selection kind of just like shifted everything to one direction, right? So um, in the pre, in the ancient past, you know, millions of years ago, there might've been some humans who were semi-verbal, some that were not verbal, some that were verbal and selection made it so that we're all verbal. Like all all the variation in verbosity is basically gone unless you have a disease. Mm. When it comes to IQ, that's not like that. Uh, And that tells me that it's not always helpful. Um, it's not not always necessary. And, um, you know, we see in like modern um, modern populations where extremely bright people, you know, they often have lower fertility for various reasons. You know, uh, some of it could be structural, you know, like you, if you seem kind of weird, you don't have a lot of people that you can like potentially date, you know, maybe that's not good to be that smart. Like, what are you going to, you know, like in, in the pre-modern environment, what are you going to do with a really high IQ? You know what I'm saying? Like, are you going to go be working at a quantitative um, hedge fund? No, you're not. You're probably another hunter or gatherer. Like maybe you're a little better, but maybe you're also like super weird now. 
right? So mm. um, I think uh, um, we're, we're, we're smart enough. We're smart enough to create civilization, but we haven't been selected to be super, super, at least like, you know, by the lights that we measure it, super smart or super dumb. Um, you know, people with average intelligence do quite well, actually, uh, when it comes to reproduction from what I've seen, you know? Mm-hmm. So so you said a couple of things. You, you, you're talking about intelligence and you're talking about IQ as a measure, or in this, this case, the measure of intelligence. So I want to talk about what, how that measure actually works and, and what it's actually measuring. And B, you mentioned that this is a trait that's normally distributed, which means, which is associated with being something that's not clearly selected for in one direction or the other. So I don't know if you, you could sort of compare that to something like height, like height yes. is normally distributed. Yes. Is that maybe a simpler way we can get people thinking about that type of thing? Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. So height is about like 10 times simpler than IQ in terms of the number of genes, genetic variation that affects it, but it's very similar. So it's basically like a lot of genes are affecting it and there's, um, you know, uh, normal distribution occurs through just like the random effects of all these genes, the central limit theorem, and you just get this like humped distribution. Now, you know, some of the nerdy listeners out there know that like, you know, it can be normalized and standardized because unlike height, IQ is something like you're measuring and it's a test that's kind of an artificial construct, right? And so it's not, so when you do a normal distribution for height, aside from like pathologies, um, I think it's, I think it's a little fat tailed, but in any case, it's pretty much a Gaussian, right? But when you do like a paper and pencil test, obviously, you know, that test has been designed to come out as normal, just to be clear, um, just to give a good range, because you can give a test like basic arithmetic and you're not going to get any distribution aside from people that have like serious, you know, deficiencies, right? So these tests are designed to be hard enough to get the normal distribution, but not so hard that they're like Poisson distributed where like very few people get the answer right, you know? So just to be clear, um, and in terms of selection, when you have variation in a population, uh, it could mean a couple of things. It could be like mutation um, and random genetic drift uh, and mutation random are working together to maintain an uh, equitable amount of variation. So mutation adds variation, random genetic drift removes variation, and you have mutation drift balance, and you have this normal distribution that's always kind of metastable. Um, another thing is you can have diversifying selection. And so you can have selection that's maintaining the diversity in some way so that um, it could be that, you know, being smart is good uh, until you get too smart and then it kind of bumps you down. And, you know, and also it could be a situation where over time things can change. Um, so, for example, um, this is not intelligence, but like go back to the psycho- psycho- psychopathy example. It could be a, being a psychopath uh, initially is actually a very good strategy for your reproduction. Um, so imagine you just screw people over and you just like leave children in your wake, you know, so your reproductive fitness is high. So psychopathy spreads. What happens in a society with too many psychopaths is like one uh, they start to develop mechanisms to detect them and, and do away with them, right? Jails. Right? Um, the other thing is also if society doesn't develop those mechanisms, the society will collapse because psychopaths cannot exist without non-psychopaths. They're a parasitic strategy, right? And so you have frequency dependence where psychopath fitness is really high when it's low, and then it decreases as the fit- frequency goes high. So that's negative frequency dependent selection. And so that's a common way of thinking how um, you know, maybe selection is maintaining genetic variations, uh, which are good, but once they get too high frequency, evolution pulls them back. So it's like kind of like a bounce back and forth creates this like normal distribution is another way to think of it. Is like that with height, a, is, I, I can make it more concrete with height. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and can you do that and then comment on like, is this a common type of evolutionary phenomenon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I will. So height, um, it, we know from most evolutionary psychology and like modern sociological analyses, like being a tall dude in particular is reproductively very, very beneficial. Um, you know, like, you know, I don't know, like if you're five, a, uh, you're not that short, but like, you know, if you have a brother who is six, one, um, you're controlling for a lot of factors. You, you know, that they date much more easily, just concretely. And like, I'm sure like people have seen the dating studies, like women, like they, let, you know, like there was a big controversy where they let women keep the, uh, it's mostly women who do the filtering, uh, but men do sometimes too, but they let them keep the height filter. And that automatically means like no guy under 5'10 is, you know, being seen by most women, right? Okay, so why why, why, why aren't we all taller? Why aren't we all giants? Well, it turns out there's a couple of things. One, once you get about 6'2 or 6'3 as a man, as a human being, I think, in general, uh, your body starts breaking down. So your mortality mm. starts increasing. So there's all sorts of weird things that only super tall people know about. So I have a super tall friend, and he was taking a shower, and he got a tear in his lung. And his doctor had always warned them that could happen. He's 6'7", right? It's just something super tall people know. What, what, is, what does a torn lung have to do with being tall? So apparently the lung does not scale uh, volume-wise um, as you get bigger and bigger. Like it's just like the anatomy and the physiology just start breaking I down. See. So a- as your body becomes literally taller, some of your internal organs like the lung just can't hold it, hold it together. They as, can't as hold well it. The lung people. can't hold it together. The heart, heart attacks are common. So like people over seven feet, Unfortunately, like, you know, you see this in like famous people like Andre the Giant and stuff like that. Oh. Um, they just they, their body just collapses. It's it's over because the issue here is like your your mass is increasing by cube, uh, but the cross section is square. And so it's like getting harder and harder to support everything and, and all this stuff, you know, and your heart has to get bigger and bigger, but it's not really getting bigger and bigger proportionally to get to the whole all part of your body. So um, that's one thing. Um, that happens. Another thing in a pre-modern environment is you need a lot of calories. So imagine you live in a society that's a famine every three years. Mm. You just die. You know. I see. So and even so, if even if those individuals or those males in particular are preferred, they are just subject to these sort of brute physical realities mm-hmm. that yeah, sexual that... selection, natural selection can operate. You know, in um, so I mean there are pygmy populations in the world, and you know it could be that women in those societies are just like. Yeah, that guy's sexy, but he's not going to be around next year. Um, I'd rather have a guy that's around to help out with the kids. You know, I mean, they they could start like thinking that way. You, I mean, I think they can observe. You can observe people, right? So, um, I think similar things with like intelligence. Like, I have a post on my Substack where I use John von Neumann as an example. Um, John von Neumann, for those of you who do not know, was one of the probably, you know, they say he's the smartest man in the 20th century. Um, I think, you know, I read a book about him recently. I did a podcast with the author, but von Neumann is, a, like, he contributed, like, several dozen fields. Um, and um, I think the way to explain him is he's, like, you know, unlike Einstein, who, like, thought really hard in a few big problems and made some, like, massive breakthroughs, uh, orthogonal, von Neumann, like, took, like, what a mathematician could do and supercharged everything right and so he made like many many advances in many many different fields but um maybe he did not like transform our understanding of existence like einstein so that's why we know einstein even though he he made achievements in like you know a handful of fields i mean that's actually 
way more than 99.9999% of people not hating. But von Neumann, literally, if you go to the Wikipedia, you'll see that he made achievements in computing, mathematics, game theory, economics, um, and a couple of other things and other things I can't even think about. Like, you know, um, like, you know, he did, a, he was co-founded RAND, you know, he did like, you know, stuff about foreign policy, whatever. Right. And so he had one daughter. Okay. And I think she has two kids. Von Neumann's reproductive fitness is quite low. And yet he's like many, many standard deviations above the norm, right? So like, what's the point of it? Well, I mean, it's cool for human race and stuff like that, but the game of evolution only cares about how many children you have, right? And like, this is, this happens with, especially like, um, not Hilbert, um, the guy who, um, Goodall, he starved himself to death because after his wife died, because he didn't, Goodall, who did, you know, Goodall's incomplete, incompleteness theorem, mathematician, after his wife died, he didn't trust anybody to give him food because he thought they would poison him. So he, he starved to death, right? So really brilliant guy, obviously. My only point here is like, I'm not really sure how in evolutionary sense, this is really beneficial. Unless like, unless you're awarding harems to guys that, guys that are like winning the Fields Medal or women that are, you know, giving them like, lifetime like you know 10 nannies or something you know uh they're not going to it's not going to benefit their genes in any way and so if they're not going to benefit their genes then who cares if it's not benefiting the genes it's going to be random genetic drift and you're probably going to have like drift mutation equilibrium around some average average amount that's necessary for functioning as a human in a society right because as your intelligence goes lower um your fertility does drop like really at the low end it does drop like people are like don't want to hook up with you you might also have some disease issues uh just because that's might be why it's lower um but you know people that are in the mid-range they do fine you know and as you know like there's a correlation with like basically um there's a correlation where like education tends to drop your fertility especially for women you know so um, there's just a lot of reasons where it's like, I don't see any evidence why being super smart is, you know, is, is super beneficial. What, um, so when you think about intelligence in comparison to something like height, say, what is the heritability of these traits and mm. how much, how much of each trait is due to genetics versus environmental factors? Yeah. So I got to like the heritability of height, like is, you know, people usually say 80 to 90%. Um, so that means 80 to 90% of the variation is due to variation in genes. So the correlation between siblings is is a 0.5, I think like Pearson's correlation, you know, um, but um, I have a friend who says probably a little bit lower for various reasons, although he's hedging on that. So I will say probably 80 or 90%, but it could be as low as 65%. Okay. Just to be, just to be clear, if, if there's any like quantitative geneticists out there who are like, Razib doesn't know the latest work. I do know it. It just hasn't been totally accepted. So anyway. Okay. Um, so, so so what you're saying is that the majority of the variation we see in something like height is due to variation in genes. Yes. That's why that's why when you do a scatter plot, you do a scatter plot, you do the the offspring on the parents, um, and you see there's like a, a pretty tight correlation, right? I think it's like 0.5. I think it's 0.5 would be the R. But anyway, um, and then the regret the slope of the regression line is the heritability, and the slope is not one but it's like it's like that it's it's high right um with iq like i usually give 50 percent um but that kind of depends because um 
high IQ is probably a, is a little bit more sensitive to like in in the developed world. Um, very few people do not eat enough. On the contrary, you know. So, um, and but you know, as we know, um, eating too much doesn't make you tall; it makes you wide. So, um, all of the variation you see in how tall you are, pretty much, is due to your genes. Like, there's a little other stuff. And a lot of it is also like it could be like stochastic, like randomness within developmental biology. It might not be environment, environment, like what you eat or what anything like that. Probably is not actually. Right. So with with IQ, it's a little bit more like environment can probably matter, um, in my opinion. And um, in terms of what inputs you get and stuff like that, uh, there's some evidence from the early 2000s that lower socioeconomic status in the United States has lower heritability probably because of more environmental stochasticity. That's a very popular study, but I'm going to be honest with you and say that like people have privately been like, that needs to be replicated because uh, it hasn't been replicated. And people just really like the study because they like the conclusion. All right. So I'm going to say that. But um, other people say that I, the heritability in upper middle class families could be could be like in height range, maybe not quite as high, maybe like 70 percent, 0.7 but it could be quite high. And the way you're really going to analyze and understand this is looking at siblings because siblings are on average 50% related, but they're not exactly 50. I have like two sibling pairs. I have siblings, I have siblings and I have a, well, I'm not gonna say the, the sex, but um, they're 40% related, right? There's a lot of siblings that are more than related than 50 and under related than 50. And looking at their phenotype, looking at their traits and how related they are genomically, that's going to tell you how genetic quote unquote something is like how heritable it is. Right. So if siblings that share a lot, uh, share more than average genomically, um, almost always, you know, like the correlation with sharing uh, the trait characteristic is quite high. That's probably a really heritable trait. If they don't, then it's probably not a heritable trait, you know, because siblings raised in the same environment, same socioeconomic status, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that that's going to answer the final question. Uh, but I think it's probably I think like, you know, between 30 to 70 percent looks safe. I usually give 50 to split the difference because it makes math easy to do like back of the envelope calculations. So, you know, when it comes to the subject of genetics generally and human genetics in particular, why do you think this area is one that attracts so much spirited interest, but also controversy and conflict among people? You know, you mentioned, you just mentioned a result where, you know, you said something like uh, people like that, that type of result. And I think Human genetics is an area where people have a lot of motivated reasoning and they, they're looking for answers that they want to find. Sure. Why do you think that is? Nazis. <laughs> I, mean, I could say more, but I mean, uh, there's not very much genetic research done in Germany, you know, and it's not because they don't have the ability to, hmm. um, you know, they're scared of it. You know, Nazis, eugenics, like that scared a lot of people. Um, and, you know, this idea of like uh, group differences, bell curve, uh, genetic discrimination, Gattaca. I mean, I could probably just keep going. Yeah. People are just <laughs> scared of, of the dark places it could potentially go. Or it has gone. I mean, that's, you know, that's legit, you know? So, um, yeah, that's why they're motivated. I mean, like, you know, I mean, sure you've done research on me. Like, I, I've gotten in trouble. I'll just say what I think, and that gets me in trouble. Uh, I'm not going to, like, you know. Okay, like, this, I'm going to be honest here. It's like, I do get frustrated when a lot of geneticists are like, guess what, like, every liberal thing in the world is confirmed by genetics. I'm like, oh, that's really coincidental. Hmm. You know, I'm just, I just say like when people are telling you that everything in their field confirms everything you want to believe, uh, I think maybe you should take them with a grain of salt, right? So I think that that is what's happening a lot of times now because geneticists are very scared 
um, about their, you know, what is it like harm reduction? That's a new thing in academia. And they think that, you know, their field is going to be used in negative ways. My opinion on that is like fundamentally um, it's pretty, uh, my, my reading of history of science is actually far less influential in uh, shaping uh, ethics and thought than it is in executing things, whether it's a green revolution or war, like war is bad. Green revolution is good. Right. But science did not tell us that war was good or that, you know, the green revolution was good or bad. Right. Um, so that's my attitude. But people think um, so, for example, there was a huge controversy about um, genetic variants associated with homosexual behavior in the British Biobank data set a couple of years ago. And people are like, they're going to screen for gay babies and all this stuff. And, you know, um, my question to scientists, and they routinely do not answer this, is if 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 you're worried about that, why are you not saying anything about the mass extermination of Down syndrome fetuses in the United States today? It's happening, you know. Why are you not saying anything? Oh, do you just mean like what do do people are people doing like in vitro fertilization and they can check ahead of time? If no, it... no, no, no. It, it, so insurance makes it free to do non-invasive prenatal testing for Down syndrome now, and um, so. The numbers are hard to get because people don't want to report it, but it's quite and if you're if you're 35 and above, this is the last I checked because like my, my wife had kids, whatever. Um, they actually recommend it and it's free. If you're under 35, they don't necessarily recommend it, but I think it's usually free too. And it's basically a blood draw and it tells you if you probably have a Down syndrome fetus. And if you, you know, have a Down syndrome fetus, you can choose to terminate in the early second trimester, you know? It, nothing invasive, like no amniocentesis. And so there are countries like the Denmark that almost have no Down syndrome children now. Uh, Iceland is at zero, you know? So is that hmm. good or bad? I mean, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's I, I didn't even know this was true. Yeah. See, um, like, you don't know because they don't want to talk about it because it's happening. And I'm going to be honest. I think a lot of it is that the socioeconomic status people who do this sort of thing are exactly the people who are scientists. They're academics, they're doctors, mm. they're lawyers. They wait until their late 30s to have children. And so if I ask them that question, I'm getting annoyed because it really annoys me that they don't answer the question when they get all righteous about other things because they don't answer the question because it's them that's doing it. Like they're they're doing eugenics, but they call everything else eugenics. It's really frustrating to me. You know, I'm just like, if you call that eugenics, what you're doing is eugenics, you know, like. So, so, so let's just formally define eugenics just, just to be careful. So eugenics is basically just when it can either be selecting certain individuals with, you know, good traits that you want to have, or it can be getting rid of bad, you know, quote unquote, bad things such as uh, down syndrome or something like that. Yeah. And and technically, and I've gotten to this technical argument because I think that it's important. Technically, eugenics should be change in frequencies that um, where it's like people that are transmitting it. Most people with Down syndrome uh, are not fertile. Uh, the, the females have, last I checked, have very subfertile and the males are just sterile. So you can say that that's technically not eugenics because all it's doing is uh, just preventing those people from existing, but they wouldn't have transmitted it anyway. Right. But I think like the way most people use the term eugenics, it clearly is eugenics, colloquially. And the way scientists even use it, even though they should know better, in my opinion. Anyway, I, I'm I'm sorry that I kind of got annoyed, but it's like I have asked multiple times people and they just refuse to answer me on that question. Because because when they bring up eugenics, I'm like, well, what about this? They don't answer the question. The only people who care about that are pro-life activists, because they're pro-life, you know? 
I see. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting question. Should you be, you know, allowed to terminate pregnancies simply because um, a given child will have a predisposition to some some disease, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, cancer or some metabolic disease or anything? Um, and it's mm-hmm. it's definitely not super straightforward to think about. Well, I mean, but it's going to be here, like within the next decade. I mean, you can already do it now if you really wanted to, but like I, I did it in 2014. <laughs> so how how, how does how did you actually do that? Um, just, I got like sampling from Chorionic Villi and then basically bullied the lab into sending me the amplified DNA. Oh, and you, and then you just checked yourself because uh-huh, uh-huh. you're a I genomics guy and you, yeah. you know how to look for it. Yeah. 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 I got the skills. So I see. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's possible to obtain the right DNA sequences to check. And if yeah. you're capable of checking yourself, you can just look for these things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I did, but, um, it's not easy for regular people because they haven't operationalized it. There's not a high demand for it yet, but in the near future, it's going to start to happen where you can sequence in the first trimester. And then it's good. Then, then can I swear? Yeah. Oh yeah. Go for it. Uh, shit's going to get real. <laughs> then you're going to start to figure out like what people want and what they don't want. You yeah. know, I think most people are not going to get too worried if their child has like a two times greater chance of type two diabetes. Um, but you know, there's going to be stuff besides down syndrome that people are going to pick up. Um, and you know, I don't know. I don't know what yeah. they're going to do. Or even something as innocuous as height, right? You could imagine that people might have a very strong preference only to have a pregnancy if the child's going to be above some height. Yeah. Well, I mean, like look at sperm banks. Sperm banks are very eugenical. Um, basically, you know, you know, and per- sperm banks are subject to winner take all, like like the Pareto principle. It's only like a few of the donors that end up like getting requested because they're tall, athletic, good looking, you know, blue eyes. Like there's certain things that people want, you know? And so I'm assuming you'll see that uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, probably instead of doing like, you know, first trimester terminate, termination, termination is less traumatic. Probably you do embryo screening, embryo selection, these sorts of things. Um, some of it's already being done um, by certain companies, certain high income net worth individuals. Uh, some of it's publicized, but most of it is not. Um, so um, it's not mass consumer, but the Down syndrome thing is, um, you know, like there are probably like tens of thousands of Down syndrome fetuses being aborted uh, every year now, you know, Just looking at the numbers. What about like, the more popular and accessible personal genomics products out there, things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. How good are these services? Are they telling people information that is legitimate and usable? Um, what are people using it for? Um, how sophisticated are those things actually? Yeah, they're, they're really sophisticated, um, first of all. And um, I know a lot of people that work there. Um, I, I think I can say this because I had her on a pod, pod, podcast. I am friends with the co-founder of 23andMe, you know, um, I've done work for Family Tree DNA, which was pioneer in the field. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's great. Um, it works. Um, there are limitations because genetics can only tell you so much. Um, the killer app has turned out to be actually ancestry and genealogy and relative matching. And that was kind of like done as a lark. But it turns out people are interested in that. So that stuff is pretty accurate in a lot of ways. There's some details, which like I, I don't want to get into like the weeds on because uh, it's confusing, but they're pretty accurate. Okay. Um, if they tell you, if, if 23andMe tells you you're 0.5% sub-Saharan African, you are. Okay. I'll tell you that. Right. If it tells you it's 0.1%, okay, maybe there's a 50% chance they're wrong. But if it's 0.5%, that's, that's a true positive. Like they know, right. They, because remember they're looking at hundreds of thousands of markers in your genome. They're not looking at just a couple of markers. They're looking at hundreds of thousands of markers. So they're aggregating all this information. Um, most people don't have actionable medical inform- results, and that's good, but some people do. So, you know, I know people who found out pretty disturbing things 
uh, you know, just for their life course. Uh, not many, but enough. So that's legit. Um, that stuff is pretty vetted by their doctors internally, from what I know. Once you have whole genome sequencing with larger populations, you're going to have more and more insight coming out of it. Um, I think there's always going to be limitations because not everything is genetic. And as you get older and older, you have a better sense of what your risk susceptibilities are because like stuff would have happened, right? So I think that the real, real benefit <coughs> is going to be when you start, when everyone starts sequencing infants, and then you start to have these sense of like the life trajectories and other things, but you can modify certain things in certain ways. So let's say that, let's say that we have a poly, we have a polygenic index that predicts uh, schizophrenia, right? Well, I mean, that's pretty important to target people with those susceptibilities early, you know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Not perfect, but it, you know, schizophrenia is 80% heritable by the way, as is autism. So they're highly heritable. Um, so you're going to have that risk. I mean, it's not guaranteed, but you have much higher risk than the average person. Yeah. Maybe so if you, if you knew that from birth, you could just be much more cautious about trying to minimize your exposure to risk factors. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you have any kids? No, I don't. Not that you know, of. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, what I was saying is like, you know, uh, with autism and lesser extent schizophrenia, but definitely autism. I know a lot of parents who are really paranoid when they're, when their kids are babies. Because they're always looking for signs of autism because it's just it's it's scary, you know. You don't mm -hmm. know. Like, oh, he's not making enough eye contact, or is he just like a dick, you know, whatever. Um, if you if you had like a if you had a polygenic index score that would tell you something, um, that would be great. A lot of it happens to be people who have who have family history of autism, so they're cued in for it. And you know, the reality is you might have family history, but it might not actually matter, and you might be able to tell. Or it might matter. What I'm trying to say is like, let's say your uncle has autism, you have a son, and you're paranoid that your son's going to get autism because you know that the numbers are like way higher for your son, potentially, even if you didn't manifest, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so you take a test and it's like, oh, risk is like 10% greater than average. Okay, that's not really that big of a deal, right? But what if it comes back and the risk is like 250% greater than average, 2.5? Okay, that's a big deal, right? I don't know. I think like, those are the sort of things that are going to happen in the future. And I think that's that's how genetics can make um, genetics can enable for greater human flourishing in that way by giving us more information to make decisions. Right. That is the dream, in my opinion. You know. Interesting. You know, just individual choice like that is a dream. And so do you um, do you have any of these personal genomics resources that you recommend that like, are there any that you think are the best in terms of do they do partial genome versus whole genome sequencing? Are they giving people more information about health or are they all pretty similar in terms of their quality? Yeah. Um, this is what I'll say. 23andMe, they do genealogy and health. So if you want health, go to 23andMe. Um, they're on a SNP array. I think their SNP array is 650,000 markers now. Ancestry use a more generic SNP array, 800,000 markers. That difference doesn't make any matter, but they don't do any health right now, I think. I think they have some health options now, but they're just starting it. If you're really interested in genealogy, you might want to do Ancestry. They have a bigger database. Um, Family Tree DNA does really detailed stuff on Y and Y chromosomes and maternal lineages, mtDNA. So if you want that, do that. If you want whole genome sequencing, go with Nebula Genomics. Uh, they're based in the Bay Area. They're pretty good. Um, and... Um, if Nebula doesn't work for you, check out Dante Genomics. They're based in Italy. I mean, I've done Dante and Nebula. They're both similar. Um, Dante is a little bit, well, I mean, not, Dante is a little slower. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. I see. And uh, is there any risk? Yeah. What are the risks for using these products in terms of 
privacy? how secure your data is and if it's going to be you i mean do these companies then own your genomic data no they don't um they can't legally own it although like you can opt in to allow them to do research on it um in terms of security i think they're pretty secure but i think like really what i'm honest with people about is i think the weak point in security is going to be in hospitals uh hospitals have notoriously bad security and i think most of us are going to get genome sequenced in a hospital in the next 10 to 20 years and a lot of us are going to get our genome sequence stolen so Hmm. No, I'm just be honest about that. I mean, hopefully, like me saying stuff like this to people, will someone in power will listen and actually, you know, do something. But um, you know, hospitals like have you heard about hospitals like losing records on like you know patients patients with HIV and stuff? And they get like so like now people know these people have HIV. And, like so they get like slapped on the wrist. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're just they're, they they take security really lackadaisically from what I've seen. Information security. So I see just because they don't have to because they're, they're, yeah. for, there's not they, being they penalized. They do what they have to do. Yeah. You no, know? they do what they have to do. So I'm 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 really like assuming that that's going to be the that that is the weak link. It's going to be hospitals because these private companies they're under um they're under um, scrutiny. When you go to the hospital. One, you're probably like not super excited. You're in the hospital. And two, Americans have a certain amount of trust for doctors and hospitals, you know, but um, I have heard of way too many things. I know way too many things related to hospital information, tech security that I think that that's going to be the weak link because sequencing is a commodity product. Uh, you can do sequencing. So the first human genome was $3 billion. Current human genome at high quality is now $200. At Nebula, I think. So that, that's what it costs to get a full genome sequence. Yeah, now Nebula. it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, hospitals can do it easy, right? They've already started doing it with newborns that are not flourishing. So there are newborns that like aren't like us. They aren't um, latching. They're not crying. And they don't know what's going on. So they sequence, start sequencing them. 40% of them, they immediately detect what the disease was. Right? So um, they're going to start to see its utility. And uh, there's going to be things like cancer genomics where, you know, they'll go, they're going to want to do repeated sequencing on your tissue, possibly. They, I mean, Steve Jobs was one of the first that did that. I mean, he spent like 100000 or whatever dollars because he had money. But now it's it's like thousands max. Like, it shouldn't be that expensive, right? Um, so hospitals would probably do that. And where are they going to store the data? What are they going to do with the data? Um, you know, I mean, I'm not like going to not shilling for my company here, but that's one of the reasons that we made Generate, uh, that I started Generate with uh, my co-founders. Uh, there's going to be a lot of data out there, and uh, we got to figure out what to do with the data. And what's human data, uh, there's all sorts of ethical governance security issues related to it, right? Um, so, you know, I think the estimate is by 2024, there will be as much genomic data in the world as there was, like, data on the internet in 2015. Oh, wow. So, okay, so your company is doing stuff related to storage and security of genomic data. Yeah, and analysis. Like we have a pretty ambitious goal, even though we're small. But yeah, but I mean, basically, the company I started, I helped start the company uh, with the co-founders, partly just because um, I think the need is going to be here. And you know, you're going to have nations like Britain that do socialized medicine that are going to come online with whole genome sequencing of everybody. And where are you going to put that? You know, right now. Um, they put on clusters, but I think I think we need like more rational, scalable solutions soon. It's gonna, you know, the technology we have the technology. What are we gonna do with it? Mm-hmm. What's it been like balancing your startup duties and responsibilities and your day job, so to speak, with the Substack that you run? Yeah, um, 
you know, honestly, the Substack is like, you know, people are surprised. Uh, like it's very part-time and, you know, I do have editor who helps and stuff like that. Um, the podcast I have an editor for, um, and I have a guy who does transcriptions and, um, the stuff that I write, I'm not saying it's easy, but everything that I write, I have to do very little research. I know that stuff, right? So it hasn't been the easiest, but it's been easier than you might think uh, based on the output. Uh, just because if you look at what I write, if you've been following me for a couple of decades, you're like, okay, he knows this stuff. Like in terms of like, you know exactly why I know this stuff. If you just come to it fresh, you might be like, wow, he's doing a lot of research for this. Mm. I'm not doing any research for anything, you know, um, like I can do the analysis easily. Like I've done it for decades. Um, I, I love history. I, you know, until I have the, I have not read many books, frankly, of the last year and a half, uh, because of the startup, uh, just time, but I, you know, spent, you know, you go to my Goodreads, go to Razib Khan Goodreads. Like I put like 12, 1300 books that I've read there, you know? Um, so I know all that stuff. And so it's just putting it all together in presentable way. So anyway, I just, I've told people this because they're like, you know, how can you juggle it? I'm like, well, I think what you don't understand is I don't write about things I don't know. And if you don't write about things you don't know, it's much easier. Yeah. Right. And so how much, um, how long have you been doing the subject now and how, how much has it grown in that time? Um, it is uh, since November of 2020. So I, I started on 9-11 of 2021 when I imported my MailChimp list, but I didn't post anything until like November. And then, so it's been like almost two years and uh, it is the number two science Substack on Substack. So, And so how many, like roughly how many subscribers do you have? What order of magnitude? Is it uh, tens of thousands? You, I can't tell you that I have, I have 20, one second. Let's, let me just do it right now. <laughs> I can tell you um, uh, how many free subscribers I have, at least. I think that'll give you listeners a sense. I have 21,333 emails right now. And so is that um, is that surprising to you that that number of people are interested in this subject? Or is it not surprising just because, you know, there's billions of people on the globe and the internet just allows almost everyone to, you know, with an interest in any subject to not find it so easily? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I'm surprised. I'm surprised um, at the traction. Um, I think a lot of people are surprised at the traction. Uh, some people are happy. Some people are angry. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a hunger for whatever I'm giving people, you know, there's a hunger for it. So I'm giving it to them um, in terms of like, you know, your point about the whole world out there. Yes. So, you know, I have a core audience of like thousands that I've cultivated, I guess, over the years that have followed me, um, you know, my, I have like 60,000 Twitter followers now, 58,000, but a lot of those people don't know me, but you know, there's poor people who've been reading me for 20 years since I was like, it's a weird thing. Like, you know, as someone who's like been on the net, I mean, I've been on the net since 94 on Usenet, but like, as like, uh, like writing on blogs and stuff since 2002, you know, I was, I was a boy, you know, and now I'm old. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's, there have been people who have like aged with me and that they follow me, but then there's a whole new groups of people that have discovered me through Substack and, through my writing and my writing is my, I, I've tried to make it much more writerly, much more accessible. Uh, you know, I, I read dry things and I'm, I'm okay with it, but I understand that other people aren't. So it's not written like, and you probably read some of it. It's not written like a scientific paper, you mm -hmm. know, like it's, it's written in a way that can engage people. So 
you know, there are people, a lot, for example, uh, a lot of retirees read me. Mm. Um, a lot of people that are like retired engineers, you know, retired doctors, and they have time now. Um, they have the income to like spend on Substacks and um, they want to know about stuff and they never had time to know about stuff besides what their professional duties were for many, many decades. And so um, a lot of them have like some technical skills so they can follow some of them, you know. So it's like one of my posts, I, you know, I posted about like, you know, the revolution in biology and genomics. And I decided like, I got, fuck it, I'm going to do it. Like I started talking about HMMs and some people, some of the engineers were like, really appreciate you talking about HMMs because- uh, What's that? What's oh, HMMs? Uh, hidden Markov models. Um, so it's just like a, in genomics, it's useful because um, sometimes you see part of the genome, but not other parts of the genome. And you can infer other parts of the genome from the parts you see. And it's just, I, I think it's something out of, I think it's out of information theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think it's been used in like um, signal transmission and stuff like that. So engineers know all about it. Yeah. Uh, biologists do not know all about it, but genomicists have started to use it. And so I just put that in there mostly because I'm like, I know I have some engineer readers and I know they're kind of lost in the biology a lot of the time, but here I'm going to like throw them a bone. And they were like, multiple were like, yeah, I know what a hidden Markov model is. Now I understand what you guys are doing with this, with the sequence. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that just gives you a sense of my readership. Interesting. And how do you think like Substack has grown so much in the past couple of years? I, I subscribe to several mm-hmm. Substack authors myself. Um, I love the fact that I know that I'm reading an individual person that's sort of yeah. unfiltered yeah. in a way that you're not going to get at like a mainstream corporate media outlet where you've got, mm-hmm. you know, at least one layer of filtering happening through an editor and just sort of the larger corporate culture that's going to, you know, tend to shift things in a certain direction. So so I like that it's sort of unfiltered in that sense. Do you think that Substack and and things like it will continue to see more and more momentum? Yeah, I mean, it is right now. Um, so, you know, and it's its growth phase. You know, money is finite. On the other hand, um, you know, people love following individuals. So there's some Substacks that are kind of like more conglomerations. So the dispatch is on Substack and they're leaving Substack mostly because I didn't want to create an institution. Um, whereas like, I don't want to create an institution. Like maybe I'll do guest authors, guest, guest people, but um, I think people want to hear from me um honestly uh and you know i do podcasts with people uh but the ones that i've done as monologues are actually quite successful as well um and so this is i think i think i will be successful as long as i keep my voice because that's what they want to hear and i have a certain reputation whether it's good or bad it is what it is and so they know what they're going to get whereas like if it's an institution well who knows new editor comes and you know they decide to change the narrative these sorts of things i'm just trying to think of why i subscribe to substacks and a lot of it has to do like, you know, Glenn Greenwald is going to stay Glenn Greenwald, just whether you hate him or lo- love him. Right. Because um, he is who he is. Whereas, like, you know, I have subscribed to institutions that have changed over time. I mean, I've subscribed to the New York Times, what, like since. I don't know, 2005, like forever. Right. Uh, it's changed a lot since 2005, you mm-hmm. know, and it's, I still I'm still subscribed to it. But, you know, you got some, you know, got some things to say about that. Right. So, um you know, so I think Substack's going to be pretty successful because of that. And also people are sick of the algorithmic social media blast furnace. Um, there are people that are like removing Twitter and just reading Substacks. I'm not, but I, I respect that choice. That is a choice you make. And um, I think that's fine. And, you know, part of it is also Substack defends a view of speech. And I don't, 
like, dude, I didn't like do like research on you. I don't know what your view of speech is, right? But Substack, the people, the people who run Substack, um, the founders, and you know, I've said this in public before, so I can say it again. Like I met them and they would not say free speech with quotes ever. Like they actually believe in it uh, uh, to a pretty extreme extent. In my opinion, that's good, you know, to <clears throat> quote Goldwater extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, you know? But I mean, they're kind of like of that when it comes to speech, they're of that. And that's not very common um, on the internet today. Um, a lot of people are very worried about disinformation, which is basically information a lot of times they just don't like, you know, let's be honest. In my opinion, I don't know what your opinion is, but, um, and so it's a different older throwback philosophy to the internet that I remember, uh, which was, you know, the internet that I remember when I got on the internet in the 1990s, I remember seeing all these people, a lot of them kids, getting on the internet and like finally saying things that they couldn't say in their small towns. You know, mm. that was that. That's the internet spirit that I loved, and that that spirit is gone now because you know people are always worried about what they're going to say and what people are going to think and all of this stuff. You know, um, someone was I saw someone on Twitter um, saying like you know. Not surprised, Razib is posting most of that, most of his stuff on Substack. And they were just like, it just sucks. You know, basically the, the person was pissed that I had a platform. And that that is that is today. That's 2022. A lot of people, you know, where they just their goal is to like get people not to have platforms. Like, do not platform this person, do not platform that person, do not be seen with that person. Uh, it's it's like middle school, except it's the whole world now, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's and what to people me, we're escaping. I mean, to me, the the only logical conclusion of that attitude is that the person saying that should be the decider for what gets said and doesn't get said everywhere. Oh, yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. No one, decider. yeah. It's quite clear. It's quite clear the way they're talking. Like they believe that they get to decide what other people get to hear. You know, what is licit and not licit and all of that stuff. And um, Substack does not have the philosophy. Um, and the founders do not have the philosophy. So as long as the founders are involved, I'm pretty confident. I have a mailing list. Uh, I'm not gonna try to give Gmail any ideas, but you know, um, as long as they don't start to like, as long as Google doesn't start to like, you know, censoring emails, newsletters will still continue. You know, I mean, ultimately, you can't really censor anything in some deep way. People will always find it. You can just make it harder, and that does change the discourse um, in terms of. There was much more freewheeling engagement in the internet in the 2000s before the rise of social media. Social media has like resulted in, um, you know, it's resulted in like a certain, and this tone is not just social media. I was um, I was watching YouTubes on, on the new Rings of Power um, show and there's some who are pro and some who are against and they have opposite views, but I was listening to the YouTubes and I was like, they use the same smug sneering tone though. Both of them do. Mm. I mean, can I can I just like hear your opinion about this without you being so fucking smug, you know? And sometimes I agree with you, but like, damn, you're smug, you know. Sometimes I disagree with you. And I'm just like, you know what? Maybe you would actually convince people if you weren't so smug. I don't know. But it was like it's the same tone. It's this like smug tone where everyone listening to you agrees with you and they know you're right. And that's the tone you see on Twitter. You know, and I'm probably doing my, it's probably like a structural issue with the platform, but I think Substack is trying to go beyond that. I'm trying to go beyond that, at least in my long form pieces. Um, and, uh, you know, um, there's truth out there. We just need to find it. We need to grasp it. And, you know, I think the earlier stuff we talked about, I mean, I think the listeners and viewers, I think they get a sense. And I've seen some of the people you talk to, 
Like they know, like we live in an age of wonders. We just need to open our eyes and look at look at that and focus on that. But instead, we're keeping up with the Kardashians. Like I, I really sound like a curmudgeon here, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no. I think I think that's that's a great place to end it. Actually, Razib, um, on that note, um, I definitely agree with you about a lot of what you just said. Um, do you want to just remind everyone who you are, where your Substack Substack is, and what you tend to cover for those that are interested? Because I think you know at least a portion of my audience will be interested in the types of stories that you tell. I've yeah. read several of your your works, and and I really like the the stories that you put together. Yeah. So uh, my name is Razib Khan. Um, you can find all of my stuff at Razib.com, right? Um, my Substack is Razib.substack.com. Um, and so I mostly talk about like, you know, uh, genetics and history and the intersection between the two. So, for example, genetic history of the Ashkenazi Jews, genetic history of the Romanis, you know, genetic history of uh, Greece I did recently. I also like talk about human evolution, obviously about Denisovans, Neanderthals, these sorts of things. Uh, sometimes I talk about characteristics. So I did do a post on height. I did do a post on um, skin color and other characteristics like that. Um, I also contribute to Unheard and a few other places. So if you go to Razib.com, you'll see that. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Razib Khan, R-A-Z-I-B-K-H-A-N. That's pretty straightforward. And I have some blogs and I have some other stuff. And yeah, so um, it's been great um, talking to you, man. And uh, I hope your listeners and viewers enjoyed it. All right, Razib Khan, thank you for your time. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description.